can remain standing for the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would go out and perform uh, what you would have it do in our hearts today. And we pray that we would uh, be open to that, that your spirit would come and teach us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Here is how I almost started the sermon. I almost started by just standing up here in total silence for a couple minutes. You can imagine how awkward that would have been. That's why I decided against it. Uh, At first you would have thought that maybe I was just finding my notes. And then you would have wondered whether something was wrong. You might have elbowed your neighbor and started to look around a little bit. And you may have wondered who was going to step up and tell me to get this sermon rolling. I almost did that to make this point. We are terrible at waiting. We don't want to wait for anything to get our oil changed, for the internet to connect, for our pizza to be delivered. Speaking of internet connection, one comedian said, hey, give it a second. It's going to space. Satellites. Uh, If you handed me a Christmas present right now, I would open it because I don't want to wait. I agree with Tom Petty when he sang, the waiting is the hardest part. If that's true, then this passage has something hard for us because what Luke tells us in the story is that faithful people are waiters. Faithful people are patient to allow God to work over a period of time and there's no getting around that. Believe and you must wait. But it also says something good and encouraging and that is that in God's economy, waiters get rewarded. In other words, 
faithful people can wait expectantly, can wait with hope because they know they don't do it in vain. And that may be the most important thing that we talk about today. If you are a Christian, you do not wait in vain. And the proof is in this passage. So let's look at it. This sermon actually has four sections and not three. So the wheels are really off this morning without Tim. Uh, The first section is the setup. The second section is the payoff, then the warning, and then finally, uh, Anna. So let's look at the first of these, the setup. Verse 22, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Two two things are happening here after the birth of Jesus. First, as firstborn, Jesus must be presented to the Lord, uh, which would have involved an offering or a redemption fee. And this would have been a public consecration similar uh, to what happened with Samuel in the Old Testament. Second... Following the birth of her child, Mary needs a purification sacrifice in order to worship again. According to the law, this would have been uh, a lamb plus a bird. For poorer families, we see in this text, the lamb was to be replaced by another bird. So it's worth noting here that Joseph and Mary, who are the parents of the Lamb of God, are too poor to offer an actual lamb as sacrifice. But what they lack in financial resources, they make up for in spiritual wealth. They do everything, according to verse 24, according to what God commanded all the way back in Leviticus 12. They are obedient to his word. And so they go up to Jerusalem, obeying God's law by bringing with them the fulfillment of his law in this child, this 40-day-old baby. And we can almost be sort of lulled to sleep by Uh, the banality of this passage to anyone else. This is just another poor and faceless young couple bringing their firstborn just like thousands of Hebrews had done for generations. You pay the fee, you sacrifice the birds, you get rubber stamped, and then you go home. But there's something different happening here And we we see that in the text when we see that someone has been waiting for them. He doesn't know them. He has never seen them. You know the people at the airport who are standing there and they have the sign and it has someone's name on it and they don't even know who they're waiting for exactly. That's sort of what's happening here in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. All throughout Jesus' life, God places people almost like signposts along the way who know him. And these are special, uh, unusual people who who have received a, a gift from God. That is, he has revealed to them who Jesus is. And they are almost instant believers. You can think of the centurion in Matthew 8 or the disciples' willingness to just leave their nets and follow him without delay. If you've heard of love at first sight, this is sort of like faith at first sight. 
I mean, that's not really how God works normally. God works through the preaching of the word, through the story over a long period of time, through covenant children. And, and uh, I think statistically for, for adult converts, uh, it, statistically, those people have heard the gospel and heard who Jesus is many, many times before they believe. But here is Simeon, and through a special sort of pre-Pentecost working of the Holy Spirit, he knows he will see the Messiah before he dies, and he is waiting patiently. Verse 25 says he is righteous and devout. He's a holy man. He thinks right. He believes right. He does right. And he's waiting for the consolation. And that is the redemption of Israel. And let me tell you, at this point in history, that would have been a fool thing to do. Here's William Hendrickson. He says, conditions for the Jews were bad, very bad. Think of loss of political independence, cruel King Herod, externalization of religion, legalistic scribes and Pharisees and their many followers, worldly-minded Sadducees, and the silence of the voice of of prophecy. Fifty years ago, on its cover, Time magazine asked the question, is God dead? That must have been what many in Israel were thinking. He seemed to have disappeared. But as always, there's a remnant. There's a group of faithful waiters, people who were just naive enough to keep going to the temple, to keep obeying the law, to keep worshiping the God of Israel who had long ago gone silent. And it's no accident that these are the type of people that we see in the birth narratives of Jesus. People like Mary and Joseph, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. And now in this passage, the elderly Simeon and Anna, who we'll meet later, So think about that for a minute. This is D-Day of God's redemptive plan. He'd been working and waiting for this moment for thousands of years, all the way back since Genesis 3.15. And people, the people that he uses, the sort of tip of the spear here, are poor people and old people and dull people who just kind of go about their business. People who don't seem to be good at much of anything but living a life of very mundane faithfulness. And this should tell us some things about what God values. In Isaiah 66, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. In other words, who I will use. He says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who do you think God uses? Is it he who works hard, who takes care of business and never quits? Is it he who lives a life of radical mission outside of institutional Christianity? Is it he who maxes out his 401k and knows where every single penny goes? Is it he who reads more news and has more opinions than anybody else? Is it he who shows up at church whenever the doors are open, always lends a hand, and deep inside feels pretty good about that? See, we all have our particular he-whos, who we think God uses, and chances are they look a lot like ourselves, right? But God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. How do you know if you fall in that category? How, How do you know if you're that type of person? I would argue that you know if you trust God and you obey him. 
if you follow his law, if you wait and obey, just like Simeon. That's our second section here, the payoff. I painted Simeon as a picture of mundane faithfulness, and I think that's true, but Simeon did have something extra. He had a little bit of special sauce. God had revealed to him that he would see the Messiah. And that is why, in verse 27, the Spirit leads him into the temple, and he takes up the baby Jesus in his arms, and he blesses the Lord. It's the nunc dimittis. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simon, uh, Simeon can die in peace because he is holding in his arms, he's looking into the face of salvation. And not just for Israel, but for the whole world. In Jesus, light has broken into the darkness of those outside of Israel. And for those inside Israel who have had the light for some time, they get in Jesus' glory. And this is amazing if you think about it. Uh, Simeon doesn't need to see Jesus' miracles. He doesn't need to hear his preaching. He doesn't need to see him transfigured and resurrected. Just holding him is enough to give him peace to die. Scripture talks repeatedly about the peace of God, a peace that transcends understanding. And that's the type of peace, peace that washes over Simeon as he holds the baby Jesus. This, the nunc dimittis, is the song of a waiter. Now there's a little bit of a chicken and egg question here, I think. So let me say, I don't think that Simeon had faith because God revealed the Messiah to him. I think God revealed the Messiah to him because he had faith. See, uh, there's a difference. I don't think he was waiting because of the reward. I think he was rewarded because of his waiting. And that means something significant for us. Because there are lots of things that we can say about Simeon's waiting and how it applies to us. But we're going to think about three here. And I'm going to use a mnemonic device to do it. So hang with me. One of my favorite TV shows is a show called Friday Night Lights. Side note, it's the best picture of marriage that I've ever seen on a screen. But uh, the main character is a Texas high school football coach, and his mantra, what he has the players say and chant and yell before every game, is clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. So first, clear eyes. Simeon knows exactly what he is waiting for. He is waiting for Jesus. Is that what you're waiting for? You might want to really think about that, because if what's keeping you going, if what you're really waiting for is a raise or a relationship to change or enough time to go by that you can move on from something difficult that has happened to you, then I think you're going to be terribly disappointed. Ultimately, for the Christian, Jesus Christ is the only one that we wait for. That's clear eyes, full hearts. Simeon is content to wait. That doesn't mean that he's indifferent. Uh, He says, now I can die in peace. So uh, there's a lack of peace in his life that's sort of implied here. 
But he's content in that he keeps living his life faithfully. He is righteous and devout. Hendrickson says, such men take hold of the duties God has assigned them. They obey. If you can't say the same, if you feel impatient and restless in your life, and you care little for God's law and the duties he's laid out for you, it may be, again, that ultimately it's not Jesus that you're waiting for, but something else. Clear eyes, full hearts, and finally, can't lose. That's questionable when you apply that to a high school football game, but it is not questionable when you apply it here. Simeon knows he does not wait in vain. He waits with sure, anchored, confident hope, and so do we. Jesus is coming back. There is no doubt that God will set everything right. He will put everything back in order. That's the hope that anchors us, the sort of reversal of sin and death in decay and the second coming of Jesus Christ. I like to think of it as the opposite of the law of entropy. If you've ever uh, read in a science textbook, maybe you remember uh, from school, uh, entropy says that the universe tends toward uh, disorder. You may have noticed that at your house, right? (laughs) If you stop cleaning and picking things up, then everything tends toward disorder. If you stop, your house doesn't just stop with you. It doesn't just freeze. It decays. Things fall apart. And the entropy is spot on true now in this broken world. But someday, entropy will be reversed. When Christ returns and sets everything right, and when what is broken is put back together, what is decayed will be restored, and those who have waited will be rewarded. But only by faith. And that's our next section, the warning. Verse 33 And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus stepped lightly into the world. He crept in. A child born to no-name parents in a, in a no-name town. One Christmas carol says, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. But Jesus is a little bit like spring weather. Uh, he's in like a lamb. He lives like a lamb. He dies like a lamb. But he's coming back like a lion. Christians wait for Jesus to return with a roar, to judge the living and the dead, to separate the wheat from the chaff and the sheep from the goats. That's what the Bible pictures the last day as. It's a a day of separation. And here, Simeon is saying to Mary, your child will cause you great pain, but he does it for a great purpose. He is God's appointed divider. He will cause many to rise and fall. Even in Israel, his home nation will not be spared the division. That is why scripture uses the language of wheat and chaff and sheep and goats. A person's relationship to Jesus is the eternal defining factor for who they are. How they approach and deal with and react to Jesus reveals, verse 35, their thoughts 
and heart. My wife, Christina, and I uh, worked for uh, a Young Life camp guiding backpacking trips in the Rocky Mountains. We would often go up and over the Continental Divide. It was sometimes a very sharp ridge so that you could see, so that you knew that if you poured out a cup of water on this side, that it was going to the Gulf of Mexico. And if you poured out a cup of water on this side, it was going to the Pacific Ocean. Jesus is the Great Divide. Not only is Simeon warning Mary, he's warning us. He's saying, you must make a decision as well. Who is this child? Is he the son of God come down to rescue a people dead in sin? Or is this child just like any other? His life and death are as inconsequential as any other. Which side are you on? The world hates that language right now, right? Our our culture is anathema to say that someone is wrong and someone else is right. I know college students personally who absolutely refuse to do that, refuse to tell anyone that they are wrong, thinking that uh, that somehow means that they are open and tolerant enough, but Scripture does not flinch. Which side are you on with Jesus? It's far more difficult to stand with Simeon to say, yes, this is the Son of God. Because to believe that truthfully means that you're not just saying something about Jesus. It means that you're saying something about yourself. You're saying, I need a rescuer. The rescuer has to come because I need rescuing. It's not those people. It's not because there's something wrong out there. It's this person. It's because there's something wrong in here. Even as Simeon waited for the rescuer because he had seen how far short he had fallen. He was righteous and devout, scripture says. But without Jesus, he was condemned. How then can a baby born 2,000 years ago rescue you? It was because that baby is the only one who has ever been born sinless. The only one who ever lived sinless. And therefore the only one who could die for the sins of others. And that baby, transformed from a lamb into a lion, has the power and the prerogative to return one day to judge the living and the dead. And there will be a sharp division. Those who believed in him will be raised to their reward. And those who refused him will be raised to their punishment. And that is Simeon's prophecy. That's the gospel, and that is our hope. And hope, as Paul reminds us in Romans 5, does not put us to shame. We see that in in Simeon, and we see it too in our last section here, Anna. Verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
She is a widow from the tribe of Asher, one of the lost tribes put into exile by the Assyrians. It's hard to tell from the wording of the text exactly how old she is, but she is either 84 or 105, uh, and she does not depart from the temple. That's hyperbole. Uh, Certainly there are people among us uh, who we would say are here whenever the doors are open. Uh, That is Anna. She worships and fasts and prays, verse 37, constantly, continually. When she sees Jesus like Simeon, she recognizes him and gives thanks to God. We may wonder, what is Anna exactly adding to this story? She seems to react the same way that Simeon does. But she's an interesting contrast. Simeon is concerned when he sees the Messiah with dying in peace. Anna is concerned with going, with evangelizing. Verse 38, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. She goes and tells the waiters, the remnant. She says that the deliverer is here. And this then is the picture we get of this whole passage. Simeon and Anna were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. You and I wait for the return of the Messiah. And just like them, we wait in quiet and confident obedience. We have unshakable, imperishable hope, knowing that our redemption is secured. We have in us the peace of Simeon, ready to die. But until then, the fire of Anna to go and tell the good news. We are terrible at waiting, but we serve a God who is patient, who has promised to not only make us better waiters, but to reward us at the coming of his Son in glory. If you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, that's not me at all. I'm not Simeon. I'm not Anna. I'm just trying to get by. I'm just trying to survive and make sure this whole thing, make sure my life just doesn't fall apart in the process. And I would tell you, don't despair. Because this hope is real and true because it is not about us. It's not rooted in what we do. It's not rooted in how well we perform. It doesn't really depend on us. It depends on this child. And the good news is that Jesus has fulfilled his mission. He has died for sin once and for all. And if you believe that, then your redemption is sure. And your hope, however weak, is secure. And you can wait with confidence, just like Simeon and Anna waited. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word. And we pray that that we would hear it, that we would accept it in our hearts, and that you would change us through it. We pray that you would make us faithful waiters. Uh, and that we would rise above our, our circumstances and our culture that tells us that we need to have whatever we want right now. We pray that we would wait patiently, knowing that your timing is perfect for the return of Jesus. And we pray that until then, we would be faithful uh, to spread the gospel message to others. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.